morning, everyone. Morning, morning, morning. It's funny, a couple of people have prayed this morning. We thank you for all the time that Thomas has taken this week to do his talk. And I've been away most of the week at, <laughs> at a retreat a vin- uh, with the Vineyard College students. So I've been with Ashley and Michelle, uh, hanging out with them down in Shropshire. I had a mega train journey down to get there. So it's felt a little bit like I haven't had a lot of time. So just a transparent moment, but the Lord's good. And in delving into his word, I feel like I've got a word. I feel excited to share with you this morning. So uh, we are continuing our series on uh, looking at Joseph. So let me just get, um, the first time I'm using technology for my talk. So it could go horribly wrong. And we might need to continue with some worship in a little while. But uh, we're going to roll with it. So this is the part of the service that we're going to open up the Bible. Continuing, it's the penultimate. The penultimate is the second last, doesn't it? Just, yes. It's the penultimate talk uh, in our Joseph series, Looking at Resilience. If you have missed one of these talks, can I encourage you to go back? Because it's been so rich just looking at the journey of Joseph and looking at resilience and looking at what we do when life throws us a curveball. What we do when life gets tough and we see with uh, Joseph's journey, there's there's just a, a resilience and a clinging on to God through the valley moment. So we've reached chapter 44 and most recently, last couple of weeks as we've looked at this series, we've looked at fear. We've looked at how a, in a, the passage in chapter 43, I think it is, the brothers were experiencing fear. The father, Jacob, was experiencing fear. But also, Joseph had this thing of the fear of the Lord. So we unpacked that a little bit. And then also, Stuart, last time, looked at how our mistakes are not the end of the story. Just a brilliant, brilliant talk. Eh, and how wonderful that is, that our mistakes are not the end of the story. So just to give you a whistle-stop tour, we have Joseph in the thick of family mess, sold into slavery, finds protection and God's hand in the midst of this. He has a resilience that's incredible with everything he faces. Then he comes face-to-face with his brothers during a famine as Egypt becomes the storehouse where the whole world are going to gather food and to be fed and to stay alive. And it just so happens that Joseph is now running the joint. He's the head. He's the person that's coordinating everything. He meets his brothers. He doesn't, uh, the brothers don't recognize him. He recognizes them. He sends them on their way with food. But also, he wants to see Benjamin. He wants to see the youngest brother that has been kept behind out of fear because the father doesn't want to let him go. But he says to him, I'm going to keep one of the brothers, Simeon. You go back, bring me Benjamin back. So he does that. And as they leave, he gives them their money for their grain back he gives it back. So the money that they've came to pay for the food, he gives them it back, plus extra to go on their way. The brothers freak out at this. They're all chatting and probably confused. Why is Joseph asking us really strange questions about our father and brothers? And that doesn't happen when I go into the other shop, you know. We just do the transaction. But there's, they're chatting and probably confused at that. But then they return for more with Benjamin, who I've abbreviated as Benji. And uh, they also give some nice gifts to bring to Joseph as well, to appease him and return the silver that was given to them as well because they're terrified. Then they are treated to a wonderful meal when they return for the second time. They're treated like kings. They're just well looked after. They have a lovely evening and he sees Benjamin and he weeps. He just weeps. And then we pick up in chapter 44. So we're going to read and we're going to dot in and out of the chapter, but I'll guide you as we go. And I'm going to ask Paul, would you be our Bible distributor? Is that all right? Uh, 
If you don't have a Bible, put your hand up and Paul will get you one. And we'd love you to have one. On these Bibles is page 37. And for the rest of you, it's about that far into your Bible. Do you ever do that when you're looking for a verse and see if you can get right on the money? Brilliant. Thank you, Paul. So we're going to start on verse 1, chapter 44, and it's entitled in my Bible, A Silver Cup in a Sack. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. So the brothers have now left, departed, but this is what he said to the steward upon this. Fill the men's sack with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for, I don't know how to say this, divination? Divination. This is a wicked thing you have done. And then just to paraphrase a little bit for the benefit of time, they deny stealing. They're like, what's went on? And they are so confident in this, the brothers, that they suggest whoever's caught with whatever you're missing, kill them and enslave the rest of us. And Joseph agrees to this. And Benjamin, of all of the brothers, is found to have what was stolen. And then Judah replies, and we're going to skip to verse 16. This is Judah. What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who has found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged aged father. And there's a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us, we will go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. 
I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Wow. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. And it's my prayer this morning that the Holy Spirit would speak into our lives, into our situations and encourage our hearts. I want to start with a an observation, really. I am a fan of most sports. I'm a fan of most sports, except cricket. I don't quite understand cricket. Perhaps there's some cricket fans here who could teach me cricket. Uh, I sometimes try to dip into the ashes, but I don't really know what I'm watching. But should sport be on television, especially before we had kids, I would watch it. Uh, I would watch absolutely anything where it was volleyball or darts or snooker. I, I was onto it. And I'd love the Sunday afternoon this is my memory as I grew up. Sunday afternoon, Football Italia on Channel 4. I would watch Italian football. And then you'd have the Formula 1 afterwards. And I'd be glued to that the rest of the afternoon, just chilling on the couch. Back in the days of Michael Schumacher. And uh, yeah, it was absolutely gripping. I absolutely loved it. And one thing that's always fascinated me about Formula 1, and I don't get to watch a lot of it now, is how much every second matters. Every second matters. And that that's so true, especially when it comes to the pit stop. Especially when it comes to the pit stop. And I remember hearing, you know, the commentators during a pit stop, and they're like, oh, that's going to cost them. That pit stop was 10.8 seconds. And I'm like, 10.8 seconds? It took me like an afternoon to change a tire, and you're taking 10.8 seconds. That's incredible. But every second counts. Every second counts. And in the big picture, every second counts. And that pit stop is needed because things can change in an instant. The car can take a bash. Things that can't be controlled, like the weather or other drivers' actions, can impact the race. And actually, in the wider setting of like 80-odd laps, the fuel tank needs topped up. The oil needs changed. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Thing? No, we don't think so. Things need to be topped up to be racing well and to avoid breakdown and to finish, to finish. You know, in this thing of life with Jesus, I don't want to not finish. And as I've read through this passage, I felt it's a little bit of a pit stop moment for us in our walks with Jesus. Uh, things can change in an instant. We can take bashes. We can get thrown around and knocked off course. We can chug along the track with little left, needing a retune maybe, just exhausted. We need pit stops. We need pit stops. And I want to invite us as we look at this passage, and I draw a couple of things just to encourage us. I want to invite us to, to a pit stop moment, to a pit stop moment, and encourage us to honestly take stock of where we are at just now. And to honestly bring it to Jesus right now. Imagine the Formula One car, the Formula One driver, and they're speaking to the team and they're saying, is the fuel okay? Is the fuel okay? Tell me about the gauges. Tell me what you're seeing. And they reply, yeah, it's absolutely fine. When actually 
they know it isn't fine, it's flashing. You know, it's fine, it's fine, we'll get through it, we'll get through it, we'll get through it. Oh, there's an error in the steering. You know, it keeps veering off to one side, but they don't say to the team, is there something wrong with your steering? No, 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 it's just fine, it's, just, it's okay. It wouldn't happen, would it? So this is a moment for us as we come together as God's people to bring the good, to bring the bad on our race this morning. So I want to look at, I want to ask three questions from the passage. And the first question I want to look at is, do you like my little Formula One? Uh, I was really proud of that <laughs> when I made it up. I was like, guys are going to love this. Look, look at the background. And it looks, yeah, anyway, anyway, the first question is what, yes. Oh, Just take a moment. <laughs> never mind, never mind. The first question, oh, it's not going to be the same now. Never mind. But God is bigger than Formula E. Anyway, the first question I want to ask us in Burness Vineyard Church, church family, is, well, the first question for us to ask is, why am I doing that? Why am I doing that? Uh, when I was a student, I went through box set binges. I don't get to do box set binges anymore at all. But uh, I went through a phase of watching Friends. And there's this particular scene in Friends with Joey, if you know the characters. I'll try to explain it as best I can. But he is helping, uh, or he's announced to his friends that he's helping at a charity function on a particular American TV channel called PBS. And he says to his friends, that's my good deed done. And also, I get TV exposure. Amazing. And uh, he said, that's the kind of maths that Joey likes to do. And he sits down all proud of himself. But then Phoebe takes issue. And she says, that's not a good deed. You just want to get on TV. You just want to get on TV. And uh, he says, you're selfish. And then an argument and a bit of tension ensues. And the whole episode is about this, this uh, desire, this, this wanting to discover, is there a selfless good deed? Is there such thing as a selfless good deed? So Phoebe's like, I will find one. And then she says, I found one. I found one. I got stung by a bee. It really hurt, but it helped the bee. And then Joy says, well, the bee's dead. So it really didn't help the bee at all. So she keeps looking, 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 and uh, she's struggling. But then she gives 200 pounds to this particular charity on the channel that she has a complete distaste for. She doesn't like the channel, and she's like, brilliant. I don't like the channel, but I gave money to charity. That's my selfless good deed. But then she found out when she was phoning to ring the charity, it was Joey that took the call, and he ends up getting this massive TV exposure, and she's like, oh, no, no. It was an absolute minefield. In the mix of the silliness of that example, our motives are so important. Why we do what we do. It doesn't take long as we unpack these chapters of Genesis to look at Joseph and ask the overarching story in the chapters that we've read, and maybe you've been thinking this as we've been reading, and maybe you've been thinking, why on earth have we not unpacked this? Why does he not let the brothers know earlier who he is? Why does he not tell them, it's me, Joseph? It's not unreasonable to look at that part of the story and maybe think of Joseph wanting to act, enact some revenge. It's, it's easy to maybe look at the story and to think he's just playing games with his brothers now. It's maybe thinking, gosh, he's just wanting to exert his power. He's just wanting to exert influence over his brothers. It's a chance to get his own back with his family. But I don't think that's what's happening. 
Let me just explain. I don't think given Joseph, uh, given Joseph's journey so far and the heart moments of weeping, you know, he had that moment in the first interaction where he had to go away and cry. And we read in this passage, he had to go away and cry after seeing Benjamin. There's like a heart response to seeing his family that he's just moved. And I don't think with that in the mix that he had it in his intention to punish his brothers. I feel, and you might think actually differently, and I'd love to have a chat and unpack that if you do. I think it was from a good place. Joseph's motives, I believe, were to see where the brothers were at, to see where they were at. Was there a change in them after all these years after they dumped him? All of a sudden, he's in front of his family again. Has anything shifted in these brothers? Also, there's Benjamin in the mix, who, in, who after Joseph's unhealthy kind of dysfunctional a favoritism from the father. Benjamin's got that mantle now. He's in the mix of those dynamics. And I, I feel there's a responsibility for Joseph. He's saying to himself, is Benjamin okay? Is Benjamin okay in the thick of this as well? Or was he next in line for his brother's abuse and hate, having grown up around that toxic and dysfunctional environment? I think he was thinking, gosh, are they going to ditch Simeon? Will they come back? Will they leave? What's the reactions? How are they going to react? Would they return? One scenario that was unpacked in studying this passage was imagine the brothers hadn't changed and Joseph had called out early, like the first opportunity. It's me, Joseph. Their lives would probably be destroyed and Joseph would potentially have been sucked into that as well. Joseph still wanted the best and thought best of wanting to see the inner workings of their hearts before deciding the next steps. And trying the brothers, creating environments where he could see their responses, allowed this to be displayed. Think about it as I described that chapter when all the food, there's loads of food to Benjamin, the youngest brother, that's like just lavished upon him more so than any of the other brothers to see the reaction of the other brothers, how they spoke, what was coming out and seeing this obvious favor. Was it evil or wholesome? Was it caring or cruel towards Benjamin? I think having experienced it himself, Joseph wanted to see where they were at. I, I believe there's a clear reminder in this pit stop moment to ask all of, all of us to ask ourselves, what are my motives? What are our motives? What is my why for doing a particular thing? Is it to raise me or is it to raise others? Or is it a bit of both? Is it to demonstrate my power and status? Is it to serve? Is it born from love? Is it for my glory or is it for God's glory? Is it what Jesus would do? Such a good test of why we do what we do. And I think it's a really good question to ask at the forefront of what we do and our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Because what, something that can start really good with good intentions can very quickly change into self-serving and develop into something really unhealthy. Perhaps the need for praise, the need for recognition, the yearning for attention, the desire to be, always be the solution, the pull to always be noticed, the need to make someone else look weak and incapable to raise our profile. It can be an absolute minefield, can't it? 
But I believe staying in close communion with Jesus and having each other really helps us, really helps us. And one thing actually I really find helps as well, and it's really important, there's another question added on to that. Does it need to be known? Does it need to be known? The hidden place with the Father, I think, grows and births a hidden place of service. No fanfare, no recognition, no names, no grandeur, just quiet obedience to what the Father is inviting us into and, and just blessing one another or being obedient without anybody knowing. Does it need to be known? I wonder what things we need to ask. Why am I doing this? I wonder what things come to mind. And is there something that we need to change? Is there motives that we need to surrender afresh and see what the Holy Spirit wants to realign? So why do I do what I do? What am I do? Why am I doing that? The second one, the second question I want to look at is where do I need to see change and growth? Where do I need to see change and growth? In this pit stop moment, to ask that question in our lives. As I mentioned earlier, Mary and I very rarely watch television together uh, nowadays, gone are the days of box set binges, but we're thankful now for, with having three boys in the house, of a good night's sleep and a nice pot of tea before we go to bed. I tell you, a pot of tea is a game changer. <laughs> but last week, we managed to watch something together, and I was really moving, actually. It was a couple of weeks ago. It was the documentary about Rod Gilbert. He was the Welsh comedian. I don't know if you know, I've heard of Rod Gilbert. He's a Welsh comedian, and it was a bit about his cancer journey. He was on a mountaineering trek for a cancer charity when he was unwell, decided to get tested, and it turned out from having a lump in his throat and tiredness and soreness, he had, can he had cancer of the throat. He had cancer of the throat. And this program followed his chemotherapy and radiotherapy. He took a video diary like every day on his phone of his journey. And it was raw. It was real. It was heartbreaking. It was moving. And I was an absolute wreck watching it. Absolute wreck what we both were. When he cried, I cried. It was such a moving watch. And as I reflect, I cry quite regularly. <laughs> and I was thinking of how to articulate it. But it's like God has grown my heart for the things that are on his heart. And I never used to be like that, like at all. Some things I just break at. But I say all this to say that God has rewired and transformed my heart in those moments and poured truth eh, as a man into my bones and said, it's okay to be real. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to feel. And it's a journey, but there is a definite shift in, in my life, and I, I give thanks to God for that. Now, hear what I'm saying here. I'm not saying, as a man, you need to be able to cry more. That is not what I'm saying. But maybe for some of us, we've built walls to hold it all together, and there's an invitation to be real. Are we seeing change and growth as Jesus invites are we seeing fruit being grown in our lives or is it rotting away? Are we seeing good things grow and multiply or is it rear pickings? Does it feel like rear pickings just now? Are we taking longer and longer to see things that God is moving in? 
healthy things grow. There might be some of us here this morning who feel we've went a little bit stale, made do, maybe accepted, this is it, this is it, this is, this is a journey I'm on. And maybe for some of us, and I believe that we're maybe sitting on some God invitations, some kingdom invitations. Maybe a pit stop this morning is about a rediscovery and a breaking of the spirit of cynicism and lack. Maybe we've accepted too much of the enemy's ground. And it's time to respond. The commentator on this passage, one of the commentators said this, for Joseph, a physicist could compute the exact time required for his cries to go 25 yards to the eardrums of his brothers. But it took 22 years for that cry to go to the eardrums of their hearts. I'm just going to repeat that again. For Joseph, a physicist could compute the exact time required for his cries way back when he was left by his brothers to go 25 yards for his brothers to hear it, to the eardrums of his brothers. But it took 22 years for that cry to go from the eardrums to their hearts. We see in this passage the most remarkable change in Judah. He'd broken faith with his family by marrying a Canaanite, had raised wicked sons that God put two of them to death, had treated his daughter-in-law as a prostitute, had hatched the plan to sell his own brother as a slave. But here in this passage, as we've read, is a completely different person, completely different, with this impassioned plea for his family. It's like reading it going, huh? This is not the same guy. What? This doesn't make sense. This isn't the Judah that we've read about. Verses 30 to 34, I'm just going to read them. So now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant and my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. What a remarkable line. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? How can I go back? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. There's a care and a love for the family and willing to take Benji's place. There's a willingness to take Benjamin's place. Seeing this change enables the next part of the story, which will be shared next week. Commentators penned this brilliant recap on this interaction. It's about loyalty to a family member in need, even when he or she looks guilty, giving glory to God by owning up to sin and its consequences, overlooking favoritism, offering up oneself to save another, demonstrating true love by concrete acts of sacrifice that create a context of trust, discarding control and the power of knowledge in favor of intimacy, embracing deep compassion, tender feelings, sensitivity, and forgiveness, and talking to one another. A dysfunctional family that allows these virtues to embrace it will become a light to the world. It's in this compassion shift, this change and transformation of heart that we see a dysfunctional family become 
a light of the world. Only God. Wow. Only God by His Spirit. And who knows the journey of Judah? We don't know what went on. I would love to have read what the transformation story of Judah. But it was undeniably a work of God in the mix. And it's a reminder for us that anything is possible. Think of the hate and the darkness that rooted itself in these brothers at the very beginning of the Joseph story. Look at the shift. Judah is now taking it on himself for his brother. A laying down of his life. A laying down of his life when before he was intent on ending another brother's life. The change is clear and remarkable. I wonder where are we seeing change in our lives? Where is the Lord highlighting? What are the areas that the Spirit of God in this moment is prodding us on? Maybe it's deep feelings of resentment towards family. Maybe it's anger that just explodes regularly in the spaces that we're in. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's addictions to alcohol or pornography. Where do we long for the Lord to change and move in this morning? Nothing or no one is too far gone. We see that with Judah. I want to encourage us in this space as we have moments to pray and respond to bring it to Jesus. Speak it out. There's great power in speaking it out to the Lord. Hand it to him. Invite him in. The Lord isn't going to go anywhere he's not invited or wanted. He will not force himself on us. And I just felt the word spiraling. I just wrote it in my notes as I was just doing that little paragraph. For some of us, it feels like stuff is spiraling. And the Lord just wants to come in his power and to say, stop. Stop. There's power in the name of Jesus. And he is here. And we've not to live in a spiral. So if any of us here this morning are feeling like things are spiraling, please, please, please come for prayer. Come for prayer. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is freedom in Jesus' name. And there is more Judah stories to be had in Jesus' name. There is a reminder and encouragement for us. And then just to finish, my final question as I look at my Formula 1E PowerPoint is who has my back? Who has my back? Who has my back? Within the passage, there's a clear sense of the brothers' love for one another. There's a togetherness and there's a sense of, gosh, they've got each other's back. Come on. That demonstrates their love for Benjamin and a shift in their relationships. And we see that when they find the planted silver in Benjamin's bag. Verse 12, then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they loaded all their donkeys and returned to the city. A couple of things on that. They tore their clothes. Now, this was a sign at this time of grief. Grief. They. There's a plural there. I imagine and envisage all the brothers tearing their clothes in just utter grief over the situation. They all did it. Secondly, they all loaded their donkeys the end of verse 13, then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. They didn't leave Benji by himself. They were in it together. They were in it together. And in verse 16, we are now my Lord's slaves. Judah says, they were all willing to take the punishment in place of their brother. It's like 
what we've seen at the very beginning, this frayed picture of family dysfunction is now being pulled together and tightened in the most beautiful of ways that only the Lord can do. I want to ask us as we bring things to a close, my wee spiel, I'm rambling. Do we have those people? Do we have those people around our lives? Who, who has our back? Who will walk with us in the valleys? Who will step up in crisis? Who, who are we that for? Who are we that for? Who are the people that we have their back? We need it. We can't do it alone. And you know, the enemy revels in disconnection. He absolutely loves when there's distance between us. He absolutely loves it when we dip in. You know that kind of, I'm going to dip my toes in. Not kind of all in. Just doing enough, but with no meaningful and deep connection. I want to encourage us, if you've been coming here for perhaps more than six months or a year, and you can't name your people that you can bear your soul with, can I suggest that maybe you need to go deeper in that? The enemy loves a shallow walker when it comes to life with each other. I want to encourage us to go deep, have each other's back, show up, be generous with time, go the extra mile, invest and receive. Find your people. Be consistent, even when you don't feel it, even when you're not up for it. I say time and time again, the times that I don't feel it and I'm not up for it, the times the Lord speaks and the Lord encourages if only we would remember that more as a people, that would not to be ruled by our feelings. And I guarantee we, would see, we will see things shift. And we'd love to pray if that's a struggle. If you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, gosh, I just don't know who my people are. I don't know who my crew is. I'd, I'd love some people just around me that have my back that I could be real with. But Lord, just piece it together for me. Let's, let's pray about that. So, as I bring things to close, take a pit stop. This is a pit stop moment. Why am I doing that? Perhaps there's things where we need to realign our motives. Where do I need to see change and growth? What are the things that the Holy Spirit's prodding on us this morning that we're like, you know what? No, I want to grow. Healthy things grow. There's things rotting just now I just need to cut off. I need to let the Lord cut off. And who has our backs? Who are our people? Why don't we stand if we can?